This is HEC Media. The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. Today we have revolutions. And we discover moving stories from the past. Hi, I'm Jerry Kowarski. And I'm Bob Wilcox. Come with us to the theater and we'll tell you what we've seen from our two seats on the aisle. Welcome to Two on the Aisle, the podcast, produced by HEC Media in St. Louis, Missouri. Two on the Aisle, the podcast, is an audio version of the televised and webcast program produced every two weeks that features a review of theater and opera productions around the St. Louis area, along with a calendar of theater due to play around the region. The regular hosts of the program, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski, have been hosting and reviewing all over town for more than 25 years on local cable and more recently on the internet. This podcast is from episode number 531 of the program, originally broadcast on Thursday, July 4th, 2019, and features reviews of the following plays. The Revolutionists at Inside Theater Company, Indecent at Max and Louis Productions, 1776 at the Muni, as well as Kinky Boots at the Muni, and An Amazing Story, German Abolitionists of Missouri at Katana Productions, Hedwig and the Angry Inch at The Q Collective, The Selfish Giant at Christ Memorial Productions, and Disney's 101 Dalmatians at Stages St. Louis. Now to start our reviews for this episode, here's Bob Wilcox. Lauren Gunderson is the most produced playwright in America that nobody knows. Four of her plays have been seen here in the last five years. I and You, Silent Sky, three times, Exit Pursued by a Bear, and Miss Bennett, Christmas at Pemberley. Now, Inside Theater Company is performing a fifth, the revolutionists. Women have central roles in all of them. Some are contemporary, some are historical, some were once real people, some are fiction. The revolutionists are four women of the French Revolution. Olympe de Gouges was a playwright and political activist agitating for women's rights and the abolition of slavery. She's writing a play emphasizing the important role of women in the revolution. She's joined by three women who want her to record and justify their roles. One is Charlotte Corday, a young revolutionary of the more moderate wing who's come from Normandy to Paris in order to murder Jean-Paul Marat, a leader of the radical wing and advocate of the terror. Marianne Angel has come from Haiti, where she and her husband have been leading the revolution of the free blacks and slaves against the French colonial government. Rather than actual historical figure, playwright Gunderson has created Marianne from several real black activist women. The fourth and final female revolutionist is the queen herself, Marie Antoinette. Olympe, in her play within the play, envisions the queen leading the country in the creation of a limited monarchy, a republic with a royal figurehead. Marie herself, resplendent in royal gown and towering wig, lavishes her affection on the others, not always condescending, but playing her role as she sees it. Obviously ill-educated, matured somewhere between childhood and adolescence, but with surprising flashes of intelligence and concern, ultimately an unexpectedly sympathetic character. Laurie McConnell's performance is brilliant. Kimmy Kidd's Marianne pursues the liberty of her people with singleness of purpose and great range of emotion. Samantha Ock's Charlotte Corday shares that determination even more obsessively and even in brief youthful moments of fear, knowing her mission is suicidal. 
Jenny Ryan makes clear that the writer Olymp suffers the conflict between the active revolutionary and the observing and recording artist. What is the role of writer and artist in a revolution? Director Tish Brown keeps the tension tight. She's arranged the Marcel Theater with a central playing area, audience on four sides, and each character claims one of the four corners for entrances and exits. Set designer Leah McFall has little to add but props and furniture as needed. Julian King's costumes preserve class and geographical distinctions with lighting design by Leah McFall and precise sound design by Julian King. Gunderson's plays have all been fascinating, and I'm beginning to remember her name. <laughs> yes, and they've all been very different, too, which is a very good thing. Yes, fine production. Yeah, yeah, certainly was. The word play is too small to describe indecent. I'd rather call it a saga, even though the running time of Paula Vogel's brilliant script is only 100 minutes. It received a local premiere worthy of a masterpiece from Max and Louis Productions. Indecent is the history of a classic play of the Yiddish theater, The God of Vengeance by Sholem Ash, starting with the reaction of its first reader, Ash's wife, when they were in bed. The God of Vengeance is a daring script in which the protagonist is a Jewish brothel owner who tries to shield his daughter from the taint of his profession. When he realizes his dream of a conventional marriage for her can never be fulfilled, he desecrates a Torah. We see that final moment early and often. We have to wait a long time to see the most notorious sequence in The God of Vengeance, the rain scene which features a kiss between two women. That scene figured in the obscenity charge that prompted a police raid during the play's English language premiere on Broadway in 1923. The play was also attacked for its unflattering portrayal of Jews at a time when immigration quotas were preventing European Jews from coming to America. The time and settings of Indecent range from Warsaw, Poland in 1906 to Bridge. Port Connecticut in the 1950s, and everywhere in between, the script says. A plethora of short scenes is often a sign that a play was not conceived for the stage. This is not the case with Indecent. It's the work of a master of stagecraft. A simple device Vogel uses very effectively is starting each scene with a projected title in both English and Yiddish. Kevin Bowman designed the projections. The setting could change without delay on a set that was simply a space filled with planks and suitcases, with the latter serving as the props. In the Max and Louis production, everything that needed the Ring of Truth had it. The Yiddish dialect coached by Menachem Seuss, Duncy Dye's scenic design, Teresa Doggett's costumes and wigs, Ellen Isom's choreography, Patrick Huber's lighting, Philip Evans' sound. Steli Seitman's props and the music directed by Ron McGowan and played by Alyssa Avery, Chris Pineda, and Jack Tyling. The acting in this production evolved from the broad stylization of Yiddish theater to a naturalistic style for late scenes of both joy and heartbreak. Director Joanne Gordon elicited excellent portrayals from T.J. Lancaster as the stage manager, Paul Cherigino and Zoe Farmingdale as the ingenues, John Flack and Judy Mann as the elders, and Katie Carroll and Tim Schell as the middles. If there were more performances of Indecent, I would recommend them unreservedly.
As well you should, because it's a fascinating piece, and it was very well done. Max and Louis really did a great job. Mm -hmm. We have a theme of revolution running through some of our reviews today. It's the right time of year for that. The Muni has also taken advantage of the season and presented the musical about the very origin of our 4th of July celebration, 1776. Sherman Edwards was a composer and jazz pianist who occasionally taught high school history as his day job. This inspired him to write songs for a musical about the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which was universally condemned as a terrible idea, until playwright Peter Stone got hold of it, and together they turned the terrible idea into a long Broadway run and a 1969 Best Musical Tony. At the Muni, director Rob Ruggiero and scenic designer Lou Cantarella placed the Philadelphia room where it happened in the middle of the Muni's new turntable. By rotating it, they could show us different aspects of the Congress as it met to debate independence, with room downstage for the occasional small scene away from the hall. John Lasseter's lighting helped with that, as did Greg Emetaz's video design, which included the lovely touch of showing on the big screen the signature of each member of Congress as he signed the declaration. Alejo Vieta designed the period costumes and Leah J. Lucas the essential powdered wigs with dramatic sound design by John Shivers and David Patridge. James Moore conducted the orchestra and occasional charming choreography came from Enrique Brown. Though we know the ending, 1776 manages to create plenty of drama from the conflicts as these men reach that happy conclusion. Robert Petkoff's John Adams was the indefatigable driving force and irritant for independence, and Jenny Powers, the wife back in Massachusetts, he longed for. Keith Hines Thomas Jefferson also longed for his Martha, charming Allie Ewalt. Ben Davis, as John Dickinson, led the conservative opposition in the almost fascist song, Cool, Cool, Considerate Men. Bobby Conte Thornton's Edward Rutledge spread the guilt for slavery over all with the powerful molasses to rum. And Alex Pracken, as the courier, sang the intensely moving Mama Look Sharp. Michael James Reed presided firmly over the debate as John Hancock, ably assisted by Gary Glasgow, as Congressional Secretary. Adam Hiller was funny and wise as Benjamin Franklin. Ryan Andy sibulian Richard Henry Lee led the musical celebration of the Lees of Virginia, for which lyricist Edwards mined the dictionary for all words ending in Lee, successful Lee, and <laughs> delightful Lee. Successful and delightful were all in the large cast. And who knew? You really can make a splendid musical about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. The, the musical is splendid. The production was splendid. And my what range Ben Davis has to be Sky Masterson and then uh, John Dickinson. <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. Let's hear some of that music. There. Does anybody care? see what I see. I see fireworks. I see the pageant and pomp and parade. I hear the bells ringing out. I hear the cannons roar. I see Americans, all Americans free. 
You can follow All Things Two on the Isle on Facebook by searching for Two on the Isle and liking the page. And you can be the first to see reviews on YouTube by subscribing to the Two on the Isle channel and checking the notification bell. Again, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching for Two on the Isle. The Muni has begun its second hundred years with a hundred million dollar commitment to preserving a tradition that still matters. Part of that commitment is the complete renovation of the stage miraculously accomplished between seasons. The benefits of that updating are becoming increasingly obvious. In the recent production of Kinky Boots, the new video screens at the sides of the stage added welcome specificity to the set for a shoe factory while reducing the distance the cast members had to travel to and from center stage. The lifts around the conductor provided a slick new way for actors to make an entrance. But keeping the Muni relevant and growing will take more than just a better stage. That's why it was so good to see the Muni presenting Kinky Boots. The rapturous response for this splendid production proved that executive producer Mike Isaacson has his finger on the pulse of the audience that matters for the Muni's future. The show is based on the true story of a British shoe factory that saved itself from closure by going after the fetish trade. A documentary about the factory inspired a 2005 movie that was adapted for the stage by book writer Harvey Firestein, composer lyricist Cindy Lauper, and director choreographer Jerry Mitchell. Their brilliant work was superbly recreated at the Muni by director D.B. Bonds, choreographer Rusty Mowry, and music director Ryan Fielding Garrett. In the musical, Charlie Price comes up with a way to save the family business through a chance encounter with Lola, a drag entertainer who has a hard time finding high-heeled shoes that can support the weight of a fully grown man. Charlie remembers Lola's need when a laid-off worker advises him to enter an underserved niche market. To design stiletto heels that look great and can stand up to punishment, Charlie brings Lola to the factory where her lifestyle rankles some of the workers. Learning to accept difference is as important to the factory's future as developing the new product. Jay Harrison Gee as Lola and Graham Scott Fleming as Charlie excelled in their highly contrasting roles. As the two women in Charlie's life, Taylor Lauterman as Lauren and Carolyn Bowman as Nicola were splendid performers. John Scherer as George and Paul Woody as Don were hooed as two key workers in the factory. The look of the show had the requisite style thanks to Michael Schweikart's set, Sean Dwan's video, Greg Barnes' costumes, and Nathan W. Shore's lighting. At the end of the show, the shoe factory's future looked bright. So did the Muni's. <laughs> Yes, I think it'll do all right now, but uh, it's a it's sort of a strange show. I don't know that every one of my favorites, but I like it a little better every time I see it, I think. And certainly this production made me feel good. And I, I love seeing Taylor Louderman always because we saw her from very young to now a great range of roles that she's doing. Uh, and it's good music. Let's hear some.
we consider another revolution now. We call it the Civil War, but for the South, it was a revolution like 1776 that freed the colonies from England. This would free them from the U.S. For the Union, it was a revolution to destroy the institution of slavery. Cecilia Nadal, executive director of Gitana Productions, while doing research, discovered that many Germans immigrated to the U.S. in the 1840s, a period of revolt against the traditional rulers of the German states. Failed revolutionaries brought their longing for freedom and democracy when they came here. Many settled in Missouri, in the St. Louis area, and along the Missouri River. Many became active abolitionists because slavery so clearly violated their beliefs. Nadal wanted to tell their story, which not many Missourians know. She wrote a play about them, An Amazing Story, German Abolitionists of Missouri, and produced it. It is, of course, somewhat didactic, as that's the point, and she very inventively told it as a dramatic human story. Garrett Bergfeld played a settled immigrant who edited an abolitionist newspaper in St. Charles. Sylvia Flex played his very supportive wife. Ross Rubright and Elizabeth Dunn played new immigrants. He'd been a journalist. The editor hired him, and the older couple took the younger under their wing. They faced resistance, both from those who objected to any immigrants, and even more from supporters of slavery. After an abolitionist editor was killed in Illinois and his newspaper burned, threats increased, as did uncertainty and fear. Playwright Nadal enriches the scene with a free black, played by Abraham Shaw, who helps the new immigrants but must suffer insults from a white slave owner, played by Greg Matzker. Matzker also played a fellow immigrant and friend of the editor. He's anglicized his name to make life easier. He has slaves, but he has a change of heart and restores to their mother, played by Janelle Grace Johnson, children played by Name Campbell and Zion Saunders, who had been sold away from her. Clifton Flex played another slave who benefits from a change of heart, and Lydia Foss played the editor's very charming niece. Vivian Watt directed, assisted by Julie Kreekhaus. Tim Portner made clever use of projected silhouettes for the set and did lights and sound with costumes by Michelle Seiler and Jasmine Wade as stage manager. In this time of anti-immigrant feelings, I appreciate Cecilia Nadal reminding us of what these German immigrants did to abolish slavery, keep Missouri in the Union, and support Reconstruction after the war. It was a story that I was unaware of, and I was glad to find out about it. Yeah, I'm glad it's being told. The premise of Hedvig and the Angry Inch is that we are watching a concert given by a glam rocker named Hedvig, who calls herself an internationally ignored song stylist. The Angry Inch is her band. How it got that name is part of the story Hedvig tells about her life between songs that were inspired by her life. John Cameron Mitchell wrote the book for this musical. Stephen Trast supplied the lyrics and music. Their fascinating work had advocates of the highest caliber in the recent production by the Q Collective. Hedvig's name at birth was Hansel. He was, in Hedvig's words, a slip of a girly boy who grew up in East Berlin during the Cold War. Hansel became convinced that he would have to travel to the West to find the ideal love he was seeking. This journey became possible when Hansel fell in love with a GI 
but going to America as the soldier's wife required a physical examination. To pass it, Hansel became Hedvig in a botched operation that left her with the angry inch mentioned in the title. Ironically, the marriage and the operation would not have been necessary a year later after the fall of the Berlin Wall. On the day it came down, Hedvig's husband abandoned her in a trailer park in Kansas. Faced with fending for herself, Hedvig forged a new identity as a rock musician and took on a protege, Tommy, the brother of a child for whom she babysat. They wrote songs together and she came to see him as the one who would make her complete. This relationship failed too, but Tommy didn't. He went on to become a rock star with Hedvig's songs. Hedvig is now following him around on his tour, playing in smaller venues in the same cities. In St. Louis, while Tommy was headlining at the Enterprise Center, Hedvig played in the Emerald Room at the Monocle, an appropriately intimate venue. The moment Luke Steingruby took the stage, his Hedvig was the epitome of a glam rocker, shamelessly flamboyant and utterly at ease with a non-gender conforming identity. Steingruby's understanding of Hedvig's journey was so complete that the dialogue between the songs was as interesting as the numbers, and the numbers were terrific. The production featured excellent work by Sarah Jean Dolling as Yitzhak, Hedvig's husband and backup singer, and by the band, music director Holly Barber, Jay Michael, John Gertis, and Joe Winters. Lauren Smith designed the costumes, makeup, and wigs. Brian M. Ebbinghaus designed the sound. Director Jordan Woods tied it all together. Steingruby is about to move to New York. His departure could not have been more impressive. Yeah, but I'm sorry he's leaving, even so. It is a strange piece, but this is one of the better performances of it, I, I think. Uh, and we might as well, as long as we have an internationally ignored singer available, let's hear that singer. You had always so familiar I could not recognize Cause you had blood on your face And had blood in my eyes But I could swear by your expression That the pain down in your soul If you're on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us there, too. You can follow us on Twitter at Two on the Isle and be among the first to find out about our uploaded reviews to YouTube and any other special news that we have to announce. Plus, on Instagram, you can see some sneak peeks at the shows we've just gotten video for before the next episode when you follow us. Again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram by looking for Two on the Isle. Christ Memorial Productions is one of the community activities of Christ Memorial Lutheran Church. It's a community theater, community theater of very high quality from the several productions I have seen. The people working there are obviously very talented and very dedicated. Their most recent production was something different. The program described The Selfish Giant as an original retelling of the Oscar Wilde classic featuring a blend of circus arts, theater, and orchestra. The orchestra was large and very good, orchestrated by Don Geller and conducted by Joe Paul, Sr. I wish I knew what they were playing. I didn't recognize any melodies. It was, it was general background music, pleasant and right for the job it did. 
I saw some theater, sets, costumes, lights, acting, dance. Mostly it was circus arts. It was much like Circus Flora and Circus Harmony. Because it used the wild story, it was more closely aligned with the telling of the story, though the circus acts occupied more of the performance than was strictly needed to tell the story. Jaime Zayas and Vanessa Wagoner Zayas, who run the Circus Arts Center Kinetic Tapestry Physical Theater, directed, choreographed, and adapted The Selfish Giant. Zayas played the giant who, after visiting his friend, the Cornish ogre, returns home to find the village children playing in his garden. He chases them out and puts up a wall. But eventually the children persuade him that playing with them is better than loneliness, and the wall comes down and the children play in the garden. The giant helps the little boy reach a trapeze and they become friends, but the boy disappears for many years as spring, summer, fall, and winter pass over the stage. The giant grows old and is dying when the little boy reappears to guide him to his garden of paradise. As the years pass, the performers become dancing flowers, spring, summer, and autumn clowns, birds, snow, and butterflies on the aerial silks and hoop, ice and frost acrobatic partners, rope jumpers, a juggler of hail, a skating north wind, all done with skill and style and, sadly, too many performers to name. Diane Mueller, who was also the narrator, designed the set, and she and Wagoner Zayas designed costumes. Jaime Zayas designed lights, and Rachel McKenzie the makeup. Nate Rowland and Dan Geiger handled the video, and Larry Jost the sound. I sometimes had a little trouble following the story in The Selfish Giant, but I was compensated by much that was thrilling, charming, and beautiful. Stage of St. Louis could have just rented costumes for a show as popular as Disney's 101 Dalmatians, but that's not how Stages operates. It does not assume that children won't notice cut corners. The costumes for 101 Dalmatians were by Brad Musgrove, the designer for every Stages show this season. His costumes for the Dalmatians were all different, so were the personalities the ensemble supplied for the canine characters. This is surely the right way to introduce children to theater. Give them the best you've got. That's what Stages did throughout this delightful production. The musical is a live-action retelling of a story first adapted by Disney in a 1961 animated film. Pongo and Perdita are Dalmatians who live with their pups in the London home of Roger, a composer, his wife Anita, an artist, and Nanny, who cares for them all. The pups attract the attention of their neighbor, Cruella DeVille, who covets them for her collection of fur. When Roger refuses to sell the pups, Cruella hatches a plot to steal them with the aid of her henchmen, Horace and Jasper. Pongo and Perdita enlist the aid of the Dogs of London to retrieve the stolen pups and quite a few more. In portraying Cruella DeVille, Tyler Gent did not hold back when Cruella was luxuriating in her ruthlessness. Jen's sophisticated comic flair was delightful, as was the broad comedy of Joshua Roach as Horace and Ryan Cooper as Jasper. The concern of the canine and human caretakers was conveyed in deeply felt performances by Drew Humphrey as Pongo, Dina DiGiacinto as Pertida, Eric Michael Parker as Roger, Larissa White as Anita, and Laura Ernst as Nanny. 
large ensemble performed with non-stop involvement and energy under Peggy Taphorn's direction and choreography and Tally Allen's musical direction. James Wolk's scenic design, Sean M. Savoy's lighting, and Stuart M. Elmore's orchestral design helped the show look and sound great. Unfortunately, the show has already closed. Based on stage's Trek record, however, I can confidently predict the company will bring out its best once again for next year's children's show. They seem to be pretty consistent with this, don't they? Let's hear. Disney usually provides some good music for shows. Let's hear some. Well, well, if she doesn't scare you, now leave a thing will. To see her is to take a sudden thrill. Well, well, Let's take a look at some of the productions going on around St. Louis for the month of July 2019. First, we'll start with the dinner theaters. The Dinner Detective at Hilton St. Louis Frontenac Murder Mystery Dinner Show, that runs through July 27th. Murder in Mayberry at the Lemp Mansion Comedy Mystery Dinner Theater, that runs through July 17th. Flaming Saddles at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theater runs through July 28th. 1776 runs at the Muni through July 3rd. The Revolutionist continues at Insight Theater Company through July 14th. Candide at Union Avenue Opera runs from July 5th through the 13th. The Labute Theater Festival at St. Louis Actors Studio runs from July 5th through the 28th. Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella runs at the Muni from July 8th through the 16th. Mamma Mia is at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville from July 12th through the 21st. For color girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough, plays at Indie Company from July 12th through the 14th. Terry Barber, the music of Freddie Mercury and Queen is at the presenter's Dolan on July 13th. Open Mic Night is at the Cabaret Project on July 17th. Footloose runs at the Muni from July 18th through the 24th. And the 2019 Cabaret Gala is at the Cabaret Project on July 18th. We'll be watching some of these productions and others from our two seats on the aisle. And we'll be watching the mail and the email for your thoughts about theater in this program and for items for the calendar. Send them to Two on the Aisle, HEC Media, 3221 McKelvey Road, Bridgeton, Missouri, 63044, or by email to TOTA at HECTV.org. Join us next time on Cable in the Web for more musicals and world premieres. We'll see you then. This episode of Two on the Isle was produced by Bob Wilcox, and the associate producer was Jerry Kowarski. HEC media producer is Paul Langdon. Our hosts this week were Jerry Kowarski and Bob Wilcox. Television director is Rick Rebelke. Segment editors and videography by Carrie Marks, Paul Langdon, Ben Smith, and Rod Milam. Audios by Paul Langdon. Associate producers and studio camera operators were Carrie Marks and Ben Smith. Set and lighting were by Paul Langdon, Carrie Marks, and Ben Smith. Our theme music was by Daniel McGowan. HEC technical support is by Jane Ballou. And HEC media assistant producer, social media broadcaster, podcast producer, and podcast host is Rod Milam. Two on the Isle was made possible with the support from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis.
Don't forget, you can find all things Two on the Isle online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to each social media platform, search for Two on the Isle, and like, subscribe, and follow us there. Thanks for downloading the Two on the Isle podcast. We'll see you next time. This is an HEC Media podcast.